Uh, the scroll of Genesis was known by its ancient readers, by its first words, in the beginning. Uh, it's, it's the in the beginning book. Uh, a British pastor, Alastair Payne, has recently written a book on Genesis chapters 1 through 4, where he entitled his book, The First Chapters of Everything. Here is God's word, God's revelation about everything, the origins of everything by his command. So this is really special literature. And uh, we are so privileged to have the first chapters of everything uh, at the commencement of the biblical story. So welcome to the adventure of immersing yourselves uh, in scripture this year. Let's join in that adventure together for the rest of the year and we trust for the rest of our lives. And uh, we won't miss a week. Uh, there's sermons, there's small groups, there's outlines, uh, the website, uh, there's podcasts. Uh, the year will be a whirlwind, a tour uh, full of delights and challenges. Uh, the first five books of scripture are called the Torah or the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And uh, the first word of the book of Exodus is and. And the first word of the book of Leviticus is and. And the first word of the book of Numbers is and. So Genesis and the story of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Then Deuteronomy stops to reflect uh, and pause before Israel crosses the Jordan River into the land of promise. And Moses preaches uh, and uh, looks back over the history up until that point. So there's this sort of fast-paced narrative from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, joined together by ends. We're expected to read them as a, an unfolding story. And then we pause at Deuteronomy before the story rushes on again with the book of Joshua, Judges, etc. I like to think about how the books of Scripture might be visualised and what it is that characterises the literature. Genesis is a preached word, it's proclamation, as is all scripture. Uh, and it's characterised by this repeated phrase throughout the book, these are the generations. These are the generations is a phrase in Genesis that we see um, ten times. Uh, so Genesis is fundamentally a, a prologue, 1, 1 to 2, 3, and then ten family histories. You know what it's like when you get around with the family and you sit around and you start telling stories. Well, this Genesis is a set of family stories. Uh, and the first five of those uh, family histories are to do with the history of humanity uh, up to Genesis uh, 12. And then there's five histories about Israel from Terah, uh, Abram's father, right through to the life of Joseph. So five family histories about the human race, five about the nation of Israel in its infancy. That's what Genesis is. It's made up of 10 family histories. So an alert reader doesn't necessarily uh, look to chapters and verses. They're not the best way to read the Bible. It looks to literary markers, and these are the generations is a really helpful one to pay attention to in the book of Genesis. What is striking about Genesis 1 and 2 is how delightful they are. God, the stories of God and creation, the early stories of humans, are texts of delight. And that's particularly evident when you compare Genesis with other ancient accounts, perhaps from Babylonians or Assyrians or Egyptians or Canaanites, of how creation occurred. In those other stories, commonly, there is vengefulness and war. Uh, there are gods fighting. 
things being broken up and killed and blood being let and uh, thrown down and carcasses, you know, it's, it's, a, it's violent. But what's the case with Genesis is the peacefulness of a single sovereign God who speaks creation into being. Uh, the peacefulness, the delightfulness of a single sovereign God speaking is stark by comparison with these other ancient, um, violent, um, vindictive and vengeful gods of creation in other stories. What is delightful then about Genesis 1 and 2? Well, three things. The Garden of Eden, first of all, is delightful. Um, in 2.7, God is a potter. In 2.8, he is a gardener and he plants the garden of Eden. It's called the Garden of the Lord in Isaiah 51, the Garden of God in Ezekiel 28. It's a paradise, a parkland of delights. It is replete with precious minerals, flowing waters, fruitful trees, and Eden means delight. And there are all kinds of trees in the garden, pleasing to the eyes. Uh, when Eve looks at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she longs for its fruit. It's good for food, pleasing to the eye, lovely to look at. Uh, it's desirable to make one wise. I love the thought of being surrounded uh, by beauty. Uh, let me mention a story um, from C.S. Lewis, who, when he was just six years old, his older brother, Warren, fashioned a toy garden on the top of a biscuit tin and brought it into the nursery where six-year-old Clive was playing. C.S. Lewis remembers in his book, Surprised by Joy, that this was his first encounter with joy. His brother's toy garden on the top of a biscuit tin. Lewis wrote, it's difficult to find words strong enough for the sensation which came over me, enormous bliss. The enormous bliss of Eden, he says, comes somewhere near it. He goes on to say, it made me aware of nature as something cool and dewy and fresh and exuberant. He writes, as long as I live, my imagination of paradise will retain something of my brother's toy garden. What a beautiful testimony from a child of six to this first experience of joy, of bliss, of delight. That's the longing of every human heart. And uh, theologians have, have contended amongst them, Bruce Waltke, that at the depths of the human quest, uh, and purpose in life is this longing for paradise. Waltke writes, paradise has been the object of hopes and dreams for every generation. This is rooted in the essence of humanity. We are beings who do not accept the world as it is. Something in our instinct, in our collective consciousness, tells us that the world at present is out of sync. There has to be a better time, a better place. That longing is embedded in the human heart. And it starts with Eden in the biblical account. The garden of the Lord is delightful. 
Well, what else is delightful, of course, in Genesis 1 and 2 is the Lord. Um, God is delightful. And I want to give you eight descriptors of this delightful Lord God, this unique Lord God of Scripture. He is uncreated. In the beginning, the Lord creates. He is the uncreated creator. He is eternal. And out of nothing, he makes the creation. The heavens and the earth are his handiwork. He is the potter. He is the gardener. God creates. He is the uncreated creator. If you could put everything that exists into two groups, in one group would be all of creation. Everything made, everything created, all the stuff and matter and energy. In the other would just be God. He is alone in his uncreatedness, his eternality. He is the uncreated creator. But as other to his creation, he's not out there a long way away. He's present for the creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Already in this first portion of Scripture, there is plurality in the Godhead, God's presence, God's Spirit hovering present. God is not out there and separate and away. He is here. He is forming and filling and shaping and planting and he is speaking. God creates by speaking. Let there be, the Lord says. Let there be. And when God speaks, lights and vegetation and land and so forth come into being. The distinction being in 126, when God creates his image bearers, humanity, and he says, let us make. There's that potter image. God is speaking and God is powerful. Because when the Lord says, let there be, six times in Genesis 1, we get the phrase, and it was so. Let there be, and it was so. Nothing prevents God's creative purposes. Nothing stands in the way of God's powerful word. The powerful God who speaks. God is the uncreated creator. He is the present and speaking God. And he is powerful and life-giving. Uh, Genesis describes an array of life, vegetation, seed-bearing plants, trees, fruit, living creatures, birds, fish, livestock, wild animals, all kinds. It's diverse. It's amazingly diverse. And then not just life-giving, but filling. Um, the, let the waters teem, the Lord says. He, he's an extravagant God who fills things, all kinds of things. And to the humans, he says in 128, be fruitful, increase, fill the earth. It's an extravagant, filling God who then blesses the creation three times. The wonderful word blessing is used on the creation. So here are four couplets that I think are really helpful in um, understanding the eternality, the, the delightfulness, the, the, the beauty, the brilliance, the uniqueness of God. He is the uncreated creator. He is the present speaking God. He is the powerful life-giving God. He is the filling and blessing God, uncreated creator, present speaking, powerful and life-giving, filling and blessing. And of course, the creation is good. It's good. Uh, finally, it's very good when the image bearers are made. 
And good can have a number of different meanings. Of course, it's morally good, it's, it's right. But, uh, but more than I think here, good in Genesis 1 and 2 means uh, it works, it's fit for purpose. Uh, here is this diverse unity. Here is this uh, fit for purpose, flourishing, life-giving creation that God has made. It's very good. Like a computer that works, that's fast and efficient. Uh, it's a good computer, like a, a road system. Uh, that doesn't clog up uh, every uh, time there is a peak hour traffic jam. Uh, good road systems cope with the demands of traffic. It's a good road system. The creation is good. It's fit for purpose. Well, thirdly, humans are delightful in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Of course they are. They are made in the image of the delightful God. In 126, we've got this fascinating, let us make. And uh, though some people see that as an early indicator of the Trinity, uh, possibly that's not what's here in Genesis 1. What we might have is sometimes described by commentators as the us of fullness. Here is God and God's spirit, uh, the royal ones. Uh, here is the full God, the filling, blessing God, making humans in our image. It's a beautiful overflowing idea of the dignity of humanity made in the image of the royalty that is God. If, if we understand creation as God's temple, and uh, that's often a picture throughout scripture. If you read Job and Psalms and Isaiah, for example, you'll, you'll see the images of the canopy and the foundations and the pillars and the cornerstones and so forth. If the creation is a temple, then the image bearer is God's image in the temple. Uh, so we, we are given that as humans uh, responsibility to represent God in his delightful and abundant temple creation. And that's all humans, not just rich and powerful kings and queens. It's male and female. It's all humans, whoever humans are, children, rich, poor, sick, with disabilities, comatose, um, senile, uh, all humans are made in the image of God. This is a unique uh, dignity uh, granted through this creation story to all humans. What does the word image mean? I like to use four R words that I think capture image. We are made to resemble God. We are like God in some way. We are made to represent God, uh, his image bearers on the earth. We are made to relate to the Lord, to know him, to love him, to be loved by him, to speak and listen. We are made to rule for God, under God, uh, co-creators, uh, um, under the sovereignty of the Lord who gave us the creation. Resemble, represent, relate, rule. Here are four R words that get to the heart of, I think, the, the magnificent idea that humans are made in the image of God. And then there's this partnership that unfolds in Genesis 1 and 2. First of all, it's God who is doing things. So there's these action words God makes in 126. He creates in 27, 28. He gives, he blesses in 128. He forms in 27. He breathes into in 27. One commentator says this breathing into the nostrils is warmly personal, face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss, an act of giving as well of making an act of self-giving.
giving. God makes, God breathes, God forms, God takes, God puts, God places Adam in the garden. God commands in 2.16. But after all of these action words about what God does, there's this fantastic um, invitation to participate from the Lord, to enjoy, to shape, to work, and to play in the creation for God's image bearers. The joy and responsibility of 128, be fruitful, increase, fill the earth, subdue, and rule. And then in 2.15, these two beautiful words, work the garden, guard the garden, serve in the garden, take care of the garden. These two words are used subsequently throughout scripture for the role of the priest in the tabernacle or in the temple. And humans are God's priests, God's royal priests within the creation and among the creation. Uh, and then in 2.19 and 20, uh, you get this uh, remarkable invitation from the Lord to name the animals, to participate in rule, to exercise authority, to name God's work, uh, which is a delightful responsibility. Uh, the culminating words of Genesis 1 and 2, of course, tell the story of God making the second divine image bearer, the woman. Um, bone of my bone, says Adam, flesh of my flesh. Uh, this is the helper, a very strong word also used of the Lord God uh, in the Psalms and other places. Together, Adam and Eve will be fruitful. They will increase, they will fill, they will subdue, they will rule. At least that is the hope of Genesis 2 as that portion of scripture draws to a close. Delightful participation, delightful partnership, work, play, privilege, responsibility. So what does that mean for us? Well, we know as we read through the rest of scripture that the light of Genesis 1 and 2 proves to be fragile. It is undone in Genesis 3. The consequences are tragic as we read the full scriptures. And this corruption of delight will only be fully restored through the delightful and wondrous life of Messiah Jesus and his ghastly crucifixion and powerful, glorious resurrection and then the outpouring of God's delightful Holy Spirit and the renewal of all things and then Christ's return. The images of delight in the final chapters of the book of Revelation where we will be at the end of this year are bigger uh, than the Garden of Eden. They are a city garden. They are entire new creation. There is an agonizing search for meaning in our current world in terms of both human identity and destiny, human personhood and purpose. And without this delightful God in whose image we are made, we cannot know who we are, male and female. Uh, so this quest, this anxious quest, is uh, evident around us in, in new ways in our times and places now. Um, so what is our ministry uh, to our times and places? What are we called to do? And we can describe the ministry of the church or of God's people in lots of different ways. But today I want to describe our ministry as one of restoring delight. We are the ministers of delight restoration. Uh, that's, I think, a, a beautiful way to capture what Genesis 1 and 2 leads us to think about. We're not going back to the garden. Uh, that's not on offer. We're going forward to something much better through Jesus until he returns. 
but the restoration of delight that has been robbed or marred or distorted, uh, twisted, uh, that's one of the ministries, I think, of the church. With all of our struggles and disappointments, losses, uh, yet even tragedies, uh, we are to seek, to embody, to form communities that offer the restoration of delight. Um, what are some snapshots uh, of delight in our current church life? Well, here at Alive at Five, uh, we have one on the wall here, which I gain delight from every time I walk into the ministry centre. Last year, uh, blank jigsaw pieces were handed out, taken by members of the church who then coloured and, and added symbol and meaning to those pieces. Everybody worked separately and at a point toward the end of last year they were put together to make this beautiful, diverse, yet unified jigsaw with representations of uh, the way the members understood the meaning and task, uh, the characteristics and the beauty of the church. Uh, that jigsaw puzzle took work, imagination, perseverance, teamwork, and now we have this delightful representation uh, of what the church is to the folks who contributed. It's so delightful. Uh, and just think of the people in the church who uh, bring delight, who restore delight through beautiful conversation, through faithful prayer, through gift giving, uh, through generous hospitality, uh, through walking with people and praying with them in need, through the timely phone call, uh, the artistic ones who love to garden, um, who love to um, potter, uh, do pottery to, to shape and form things, who, who make meals, who make music, who make poetry. Uh, what about those in reading groups uh, and those who are just delightful friends? Uh, we've just started a new group on a Thursday at 2.30 uh, down at the Ori, uh, down at the pub down there in the court, forecourt. We're calling it Cato, Chat at the Ori. It's just a chance to come, no agenda, sit and chat and make new friends uh, from 2.30 to 4 each Thursday. And I'll be down there and Paul and others and we've just, just started, but, but we think it's a delightful thing to do because you know, COVID months and isolation and anxiety and mental health challenges there before us all. So how can we restore to delight? It's not just by setting up programs or, or joining Bible study groups. It's also uh, by, by becoming friends with people and having a free, uh, patient uh, opportunity uh, to delightfully connect in a non-threatening location such as the, the courtyard down the street. Uh, we'll shout the coffee, 2.30 every Thursday. Uh, Cato, chat at the Ori, come down and just sit around and make some new friends. That's delightful. We will be those who restore delight until Christ returns. And uh, my challenge to each of us today is to ask what gifts, what delightful gifts has God given to us that we can share, that we can bless others with, uh, that we can restore delight in the lives of uh, people who are part of this uh, delightful community? How can we contribute to this delight restoration uh, that we are called to until Christ returns and secures an entirely delightful world forever? Thanks be to God for the hope, the delight of Scripture as it commences. The delightful garden, the delightful God, delightful humanity, 
and in the light of our calamities and failures from Genesis 3 onwards, uh, let's commit ourselves to being ministers of delight, restoration for our times and places. Blessings.